Is the Biden stimulus plan going to be big enough to save the economy, the American economy, and maybe pull the whole world out of this COVID recession that we're in? My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're going to ask that question to Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, on the 19th of April, you posted at Alhambra Partners an article, and it was called Neither Keynes, Trump, Pumps, Nor Priming. And the metaphor that we're going to be referencing here is priming the pump, which has to do with a well. And I'm not quite sure, but you know who else wasn't quite sure? Maybe, maybe it was Donald Trump, because as you tell us in this article, in May 2017, he invited The Economist, the magazine, to the White House to explain his program to get the economy out of the rut that it was in in 2006. Let me just read this. Quote, it quickly devolved into a war of interpretation between the president and the mainstream media adamantly opposed to him, focused entirely on the words used during the discussion rather than the substance of what had been discussed. President Trump infamously having trouble with words. So let's focus instead on the substance. What was he telling The Economist? Well, he was coming out with, if you remember back in 2017, he campaigned on the idea that the unemployment rate was fake. There hadn't been an actual economic recovery, at least not a legitimate one, since the 2008 Great Recession. And it was his job, as he saw it, and what, he got, what got him elected to the White House, to change all that. And the way he was going to change all that was what he was selling to the economists in May of 2017, which was his brilliant stimulus plan which was supposed to have been somehow different from all previous stimulus plans. And in his typical grandiose fashion, he said, you know, I came up with this idea just a couple of days ago and it was great. And most people, after referring to pump priming, most people in the media took that to, to, took that to mean that he was claiming that he came up with the idea of pump priming, you know? And so it was, that was sort of the, the distraction that went on. And, Really, what he was saying is we got all the stimulus we're going to do, tax reform, corporate tax rates, that kind of thing. And this is going to be really wonderful stuff. That's going to be the, the, the thing that breaks the dam and, and leads to economic recovery so that we can stop looking at the unemployment rate as fake. Now, priming the pump is actually a phrase that is most closely associated with British romantic John Maynard Keynes, who apparently whispered that sweet nothing into the ear of on some amorous escapade somewhere. Is that what it was? Or what is the idea having to do with that phrase? Yeah, well, the phrase actually goes into the, back into the 19th century, and Keynes never actually used it. It's been associated with his policies because it most closely matches the idea. And the idea is what in modern, modern economists call hysteresis, which is nothing more than you know, a body at rest needs some force to get it shoved back into motion again. So an economy that's contracting, economy that's in recession, needs some kind of external exogenous force to get it moving back, back toward uh, recovery again. And that's usually, this is where Keynes comes in, that's usually the role assumed by government, that the government will spend freely in, during a recession in order to prime the pump to get the, the economy moving back in the right direction so that it can then take off on its own at a later time. And the idea is, you know, first of all, you're limiting the, the, the downside in the contraction and the recession part, while also increasing the, the vibrance and likelihood of the recovery which will follow. Jeff, you know, I was listening to a podcast recently with David Beckworth and his 
podcast is called Macro Musings. It's a good podcast. It's the kind of central banks are central kind of a podcast. And do you know what their last show was about? Hysteresis. The whole show was about that. And they had Antonio Fatis on. So if anyone in our audience wants to get a deep dive on hysteresis, go check out that podcast. But Jeff, is it just another word for recession or secular stagnation or new normal? Is this just another euphemism that David Parkins recently illustrated for us in our previous episode, how he showed uh, it was from the seventh seal and we, he showed depression slash death playing chess with Biden. And the idea was he had these uh, sand glasses, the time glasses with the sand already run through of all the previous presidents who have already tried to beat him, already tried to beat depression with their stimulus policies. And that's what you say here is that Obama had already tried this and I think Bush did too. Yeah, and that's, I think, really the point here is, was Trump doing anything different? Was it actually something that would break the spell of, as you point out, this, this lack of economic growth, lack of economic recovery that goes back into the Bush years? And so we've had Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, and each one thinks they're doing something different, but you know, what does everyone else, what does the actual economy do? What, does, what is the response to it? And really, hysteresis is, it's 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 too fancy of a term and it really doesn't need to be that but that's you know typical economics which is showing their physics envy here which is let's mm -hmm. make a really really simple topic into something more complicated than it needs to be which is it's, it's really about what role does the government play in recovery or what how does recovery actually manifest itself or does recovery manifest itself if the government doesn't do anything if there's no exogenous shock or there's if there's no exogenous positive uh, response to a recession maybe does the does the economy never recover is that what we're supposed to believe and it, it's really no it, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a ridiculous notion but that is part partly of the, the uh, what what's associated with the keynesian version of pump priming which is that look the government needs to step in, do something. Otherwise, if it doesn't, it risks having an illegitimate or, or lack of full recovery on the other side. And if you believe that, then you think, well, if the, we haven't had a recovery, then we still have the hysteresis problem, which is the government hasn't pushed hard enough to get the economy moving forward and generate enough momentum so that it can take off from there on its own. Because recovery isn't just some economic growth. It's not just some you know, a couple quarters of really good GDP, it's sustained economic growth year after year after year after year. And what the Keynesians are saying is that to get to that point, we need to have this boost, this tremendous boost. It's almost like a rocket lifting off from, from Earth. You know, you have to have a tremendous, massively powerful engine to get this huge weight off the ground and flying upward toward the outer space. And that's really kind of the idea here is that you got to provide this massive force in order to push the economy into its recovery mode. And if it doesn't get to recovery mode, then you didn't push hard enough. You know, I mentioned David Parkins earlier, our illustrator uh, for the show. And of course, he's moved up to the big leagues illustrating for us because before he was amateur and he's done numerous covers for The Economist. Yes, that's right. David Parkins has illustrated numerous covers for The Economist, but he didn't illustrate the one that we're going to be discussing, the one that came after their meeting with President Trump 
in which they said, wow, this, they are running hot. And they had a, a hot rod with Jay Powell and Donald Trump. And they, and they said, America's extraordinary gamble. Let me just set the scene because it's going gonna, it's gonna to echo what we're hearing right now about President Biden's stimulus. Let me read just the first paragraph from this February 23rd, 2018. When should policymakers stop stimulating an economy? America's unemployment rate is 4.1%. At such a low level, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, would normally expect inflation to rise. In 2017, the economy grew by 2.5%, spurred by falls in joblessness that cannot go on forever. And inflation, though still below the Fed target, has overshot forecasts in recent months. All that might suggest that stimulus has become unnecessary, yet America is cutting taxes and raising spending. As a result, in 2018 and 19, it is poised to run an experiment by stimulating economic activity when times are already good. It will find out what happens when the economy runs hot. Well, how did the experiment <laughs> yeah. turn out? I know. And that's what's, what we're laughing about is that we've discussed this before, but what we're laughing about is at that very moment that that paragraph had been printed, the demise to all that had already been unleashed upon the world. The euro dollar number four had already begun working its way through the system, which eventually wrecked everything there. But you could, yeah, I think you're right to point out the parallels here, which is that, look, what they were saying is that. You know, when when he when President Trump sat down with the economists in May 2017, it was still kind of this globally synchronized growth thing was still kind of, you know, we weren't really sure about it. It's coming. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. By early 2018, consensus had it that, look, the economy, the global economy is starting to boom again. And here comes President Trump almost unnecessarily adding more fuel to the inflationary fire. Again, he's in danger of doing too much. The economy has reached its potential and is threatening to go above it. So saith the unemployment rate. Therefore, adding this 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 almost unnecessary boost in you know tax reform and and uh, all the rest of the TCGA risked getting uh, risk igniting inflationary pressures that would soon spiral out of control or potentially spiral out of control. Which is you know as you pointed out exactly the same parallels to what we're hearing today that. The economy is moving into the right direction. It's reached or nearly reached its potential again. And then we're going to add more government stimulus on top, which is going to, of course, create the inflationary pressures. Yet people make these claims today without ever having stopped and said, well, why do we get it wrong last time? Everything that we say now, it was said before three years ago. And three years ago, it sure didn't lead into any of those kinds of things that we've been talking about. And that's really the point here. If we're talking about recovery, what is actually recovering, hysteresis and all that, and what is the role of stimulus, the idea is, well, maybe we need to define what a recovery actually is. And maybe it's a little bit more than a low unemployment rate, which which ironically goes back to President Trump's main uh, campaign's thesis, which was the economy's not good because the unemployment rate is fake. And I think his big mistake in those early years was as soon as he got into office, he, he suddenly turned around and said, look, the unemployment rate's awesome. So it was bad under Obama, but good under Trump. And that's just, you know, I think from there, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't follow through with what his real promise was, which was to be a game changer. 
Instead, he did this stimulus that sounded different than previous stimulus, but it really wasn't. It was all the same stuff. He, it wasn't game-changing at all, and the results were exactly, exactly as you would expect when you realize that's the case. The underlying problems, the underlying lack of recovery, despite the bumper sticker slogan of globally synchronized growth, they didn't mean anything. Despite the unemployment rate, they still had the same major problems behind them, which is, you know, for one, on one thing, stop listening to economists and central bankers. In episode 46, we, I read to you the modern version, the most recent version of that economist's idea that the economy is running hot. So for anyone that wants to listen to uh, the same story, but now it's Biden's stimulus that's going to overheat the economy and cause inflation, check out episode 46. I guess, Jeff, the kind of the question that I want to take away here is... Why does stimulus sometimes work, but other times it doesn't? I think if you take a broad look at the post-World War II experience, you would say that it worked. Now, there were exceptions to the rule, though, right? When stimulus could never recover the economy. And I'm thinking of 1970s Russia, 1980s Africa and South America, 1990s Japan. So these are pretty big examples. But I guess the, this goes back perhaps to Friedman's no permanent shocks assumption. The stimulus does work if we're in, not in a depression and we can well, recover think, from a recession. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you have you to think? define your term. What do we mean by work? <laughs> you know, that's really the, I we think. require past trends of economic growth. Yeah, and I think that that to me, I, I would object to that characterization because I think what stimulus does is it correlates with economic growth that's already taken place. So you can make a correlation between it doesn't hard, it doesn't seem to to you know stop growth that's already taken place. You know, if recovery is already in the process of recovery, then adding more government spending doesn't interrupt recovery because that's what recovery is. To me, recovery is the natural economic process, which if you get out of the way and let it happen, it usually turns out to be very robust. Um, but you're right. You point out some of these uh, these obvious counter uh, counter examples, like the United States in 2009, for example. Again, stimulus comes in at the end of the Great Recession, and it correlates with the rebound in economic activity, but it did not lead to recovery. And that's an important distinction, because positive GDP is not the same thing as recovering GDP, which is we started here. We went way down here. Now we go back to where we would have been had there been no contraction, you know, the Milton Friedman's plucking model. And that never happened. So when we, we were trying to evaluate the effectiveness of stimulus from the Keynesians and the government and the proponents of government spending and aggregate demand, what they end up saying is, well, it, it, it saved jobs. It would have been worse if we hadn't done it. And really, there's, you know, that kind of counterfactual you can't falsify. So it sounds like, well, maybe stimulus did something. But one thing it did not do that is unequivocal is it didn't lead to actual legitimate recovery. We didn't get back to where we should have been had there been no Great Recession. And that really should have stimulated discussion about why. What was really the problem here? Was the problem that we didn't do enough stimulus, as people like Paul Krugman had said in 2008, is it, is it that governments didn't do enough? Did the Fed not do enough? Did government need to do a little bit different kinds of stuff and bigger numbers or all that stuff? Or is there something else going on here that is causing 
what Larry Summers calls secular stagnation, what we call the silent depression, is there another explanation that doesn't involve stimulus one way or the other? And I think that's really what we're getting to. That's what we got, what we're, we were talking about and looking at in 2017 and 2018 was that, look, no matter what, what you know, President Trump had said, no matter what the economists had said about the conditions that that quote unquote stimulus was being added to, added into, the underlying condition was the same as it had been 10 years earlier. And therefore, you know, this stuff wasn't going to lead to inflation. It wasn't going to lead to accel sustained accelerating growth. And how do we know that? The bond market told, the, the, the uh, global monetary system told us that this, this was nothing different, that there was really nothing different about it. And so fast forward another three years, here we are again with the same basic argument. Is it government spending in the bigger number? Is that really the, the, the independent variable that's going to prove how we get out of this underlying structural mess? And the bond market is saying, no, things are better than they were last year. So we had a reflationary sell-off. And really, the market, the reflationary sell-off this year is even less impressive than it had been in 2017 and 2018, which is amazing when you stop and think about it. When, you know, the numbers are all much, much bigger now The the, 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 the inflation hysteria, as I call it, is even more hysterical. It's, you know, mainstream, it's a done deal as far as most people in the mainstream are concerned. It's going to happen. Inflation is going to get out of control, all this stuff. And yet the market is again telling us it's not stimulus that's the issue here. It's the, there's something broken in the system that nobody's talking about, nobody's dealing with, nobody's even attempting to look at. In episode 32, part one is where we discussed Milton Friedman's plucking model, if anyone in the audience wants to learn more about that. Jeff, I want to mention that in 2008, we had stimulus from President Bush as well. Remember the quick tax refunds? So now we're going to have two Republican, two Democrat presidencies with stimulus, and the results are predictably going to be the same. It's not a political raise taxes, cut taxes, spend more, spend less. It's a wholesale different perspective. Bipartisan failure. Yes. It's, yes. it's both parties. They both get it wrong time and again. And because they listen to convention, they listen to economists and central bankers. And I'm glad you brought that up because people forget about that. That Bush stimulus was a helicopter. It's just, he paid people through tax credits, essentially just for being people, for just, for just being a taxpayer. I'm going to give you, what was it, $300 and $600 for couples? You know, it wasn't as much as it is now, but back then that was a radical idea. Mm -hmm. And the reason people don't remember anything about it is because it was just that effective. It was just that forgettable. Well, all this quote-unquote stimulus is actually raising the debt level quite badly, quite dramatically relative to GDP. And that's what we're going to discuss in part two. But first, this from Euro Dollar Enterprises. Motion picture event of the summer, Contango and Cash. When an international smuggling rink uses the local commodity exchange to send gold into backwardation, two macroeconomists take matters into their own hands and onto the spot market. Starring Travis, the President Kimmel as Contango. You can take delivery alone, punk. And Steven the Monarch Van Meter as Cash. You know how I promised to let you close out that trade? Yeah, man, you did, Cash. You did promise. I lied. With Grant Williams as the polite British guy. Well, Chops, you put the mockers on, didn't you? 
This motion picture will never be rated, available only on demand at Real Vision. In January 2010, two economists, Carmen Reinhart and Kenneth Rogroff, produced a paper that suggested at a certain government debt level, bad things would start happening to nations. Now, it was called growth in a time of debt. And here's what one of their conclusions was. Here's one of the conclusions. First, the relationship between government debt and real GDP growth is weak for debt to GDP ratios below a threshold of 90% to GDP. Above 90%, median growth rates fall by 1% and average growth rates fall considerably more. We find that the threshold for public debt is similar in advanced and emerging economies. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, recently brought up this paper in an article in which he asked, where are the bond vigilantes? Jeff, tell us, how, how do you introduce us to their paper? Well, first of all, I mean, I think that their the conclusion is a good, a good solid one, a good, a good place to start. But it may not sound like all that much, right? We, governments get to 90% of GDP and debt, and that drags growth by 1%, which, eh, does that really matter? And that's, again, you know, we talk about this all the time. We live in a nonlinear world, which means rate of change is everything. And a 1% de decrease in rate of change, it doesn't sound like a lot, but over time, it's immense. That's a really, it's a really legitimate, it's a really big drag on economic growth and activity. Therefore, you know, progress, social advance, rising living standards, all those things are constrained. So, and I think this, you know, the, 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 the paper's conclusions do conform to, I think, a basic intuitive sense of how things should be, right? If the government gets itself out of control, there has to come a time when there are consequences to that. Not, not just political consequences, because obviously voters oftentimes like being showered with bribes and gifts and things like that, but some other sorts of financial consequences that, that impede the government's ability to just do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however much it wants. And so when they came out with this paper 10 years ago, it was like, okay, here's the line. 90% of GDP, we've looked at, I think it was something like 2,600 different uh, observations across several hundred years. I think there was 144 or 100 and some odd observations, 200 some odd observations, perhaps, in the United countries. States alone. Yeah, 44 countries spanning about 200 years. Yeah, that so, incorporates over 3,700 annual observations covering a range of political systems, institutions, exchange rate arrangements, and historic circumstances. Right. So it was a it was a really exhaustive, comprehensive survey, and they found statistically significant results that said, you know, not exactly ninety percent, but somewhere around ninety percent. As they said, underneath ninety percent, governments can do what they want. It doesn't interfere with doesn't appear to interfere with growth. But once they get to that ninety percent threshold and go above it, we see this. Statistically, obviously, there's there's outliers and there's cases where it doesn't have. But more often than not, you can expect that above ninety percent economic growth is going to be hindered. And that was a, you know, that was some of one of those things that in 2009 seemed to be pretty important because that was the way the world was working. In the aftermath of the Great Recession, massive amounts of government borrowing, stimulus, Keynesians, and all these other things, hysteresis, as we just talked about. And it looked, it really looked like we were going to violate uh, not just the United States, but a lot of places around the world. We're going to start flirting with the Reinhardt-Rogoff cutoff line. Now, it sounds a little bit 
what their words are are not too dramatic, but the way we're speaking of it, it sounds dramatic. There's a cutoff line. There are consequences. But I'm thinking perhaps we're thinking of a hyperinflation or a default. And that's much further, if ever, than the 90% line. The 90% line, they're just saying growth will slow. And let me give you my thesis why I think that happens. I think that happens because debt is always paid. It's always paid by someone. And around 90%, the different sectors of the economy start looking around and start wondering who's going to pay. And they start making sure that they're not settled with the bill. So I'm thinking of households, businesses, governments, foreigners, the wealthy, the poor. They start working and thinking more about who's going to pay the debt as opposed to worrying about economic activity. So I think that's why we start seeing growth slowing. What about Carmen uh, Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff? What did they say? What was why did we see this slowing in growth? What was their thesis? Well, yeah, and I, they're, they're, they didn't come up with a specific reason. They listed a couple of theoretical reasons that had been investigated in papers before. And what you're saying, Emil, is kind of what they were saying too. Hmm. In one sense that you know the, the economy, economic ages and economic participants start thinking at 90%, you know, somebody's going to end up paying. And how do you end up paying for this government debt? Well, the government's not a private company that it can just, you know, take some revenue from its natural business processes and pay off the debt. It's going to tax somebody, mm-hmm. which means it's going to tax you and me. So when the government debt gets large, we start realizing forward tax projections go up, which can be a hindrance upon economic growth, certainly a hindrance upon expectations. However, what they were saying is that this 90% threshold, why it triggered it, was that that was most likely because of uh, what they called debt intolerance, which is something uh, that uh, another paper that they had written along with a guy named Sevastano in 2003 had investigated, which was essentially bond vigilantes. When we get to that 90% level, before, I got, uh, before people in the real economy start worrying about taxes, bond vigilantes start worrying about it right away. And what they say is that at the 90% threshold, one of the possible or maybe even most likely scenarios behind this you know, lack of economic growth that, at, after triggering this threshold is that you know, bond vigilantes start saying, we don't want these bonds anymore because we don't see any credible way for the government to pay off this debt. So we're going to start selling their debt, start disposing of any kind of, you know, not buying their, their uh, uh, any securities that are auctioned off so that interest rates begin to rise and rise and rise, which hinders the government's ability to do these bad things, you know, incurring more debts along the way. As the bond vigilante rises, in order to that to, to then get the uh, bond investors back into the fold, governments have to undergo radical changes to their policies, which includes getting their house in order. We do have to raise taxes. We do have to cut back spending. We do have to do these things. And these economists, Reinhard Rogoff being good Keynesians, said, well, you know, there's, your, there's, there's one reason why there would be lack of economic growth, because there's less government uh, contributions to aggregate demand. And that's, you know, seemingly a, a plausible, at least a plausible sounding theory. There are a couple other options. They could devalue the currency. They could, what else could they do? They could implement uh, financial repression to keep inflation rates above rates of return. So there are a number of possibilities they could pursue. And the Bank for International Settlements 
uh, on another topic now, Bank for International Settlements, they put together a nice data set that shows what the government debt to GDP is for some 40 different countries. And I'm looking at September in 2008 right now, and I only see four countries, Japan, Greece, Italy, I'm gonna throw Singapore in there because they're at 89, and Belgium being close to the 90% line. But by September 2011, we had a lot more. Japan, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Singapore, Belgium, let me keep going, France, the United Kingdom, Spain, Argentina, and Ireland. And that's where you take us next in your report to the European sovereign debt crisis, where starting in 2011, and remember the paper we're discussing was published in 2010. It was almost as if it was foretold. It was happening, Jeff. The European sovereign debt crisis come to life as predicted. Yeah, the vigilantes showed up at least for the club med countries, right? The so-called pigs, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, right? All of a sudden they found uh, those debt, th- th- those bonds were just, were not worth investing in. Uh, they weren't worth the collateral and certainly the, the repo markets causing all sorts of problems there. And interest rates on those governments, uh, those government uh, bonds skyrocketed at least until 2012 when Mario Draghi made his famous promise. So for at least a couple of years, it looked like these things were actually happening in the way and in the manner that, that uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff had, had anticipated. Guess what? We've just had a big crisis. GDP is down very strongly and debt levels are up as governments are spending on furloughs and government guarantees of bank loans and so forth. And so the EU just yesterday, the 21st, said they reported what the calendar year uh, 2020 debt level forecast is. And here here it is. In the EU, the government debt to GDP ratio increased from 77.5% at the end of 2019 to 90.7% at the end of 2020, while the euro area increased from 839 to 98%. So both numbers are at in that danger zone, as Mr. Tom Cruise would tell us. What? But but wait a minute. Where are the bond vigilantes now? Not only are there no bond vigilantes over the last eight, nine years in any of those places, including the United States, including Japan, um, we still have no economic growth. So, you know, something big is missing from the equation here, at least, in, you know, historically speaking, lots of data that says 90% threshold, vigilantes, all that kind of stuff. And that's the, that explains the economic growth dec- decay when over the last 13 years now, we've had, we definitely have had the lack of economic growth, but outside of those few cases, no vigilantes, there's no debt intolerance anywhere. In fact, just the opposite, the higher government debt goes the lower bond yields seem to fall. So it's it seems like that's not that can't be the trigger between or at least the the consistent correlation between or the causation between uh, what we see in the bond markets and what what actually governments are doing. And it's really it kind you kind of get locked into a, a downward spiral here, too, because governments are responding to lack of economic growth, which means they end up doing more. And that doesn't produce the kind of results they're expecting, which means there's going to be continuous lack of economic growth, which only means governments are going to end up doing more. So debt levels are going to go up. GDP levels are not going to rise very quickly. And soon you're going to find instead of, as you said, you know, 2008, there's only a handful of countries 
at that 90% threshold, I would wager that today that almost every single one of them is on or above, at or above that 90% level, including the United States. That's correct. Let me read the latest statistics from the BIS as of September 2020. Here are all the countries that are above the 90% threshold. Japan, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Singapore, Belgium, France, the United Kingdom, Spain, United States, Canada, Argentina, Austria, Brazil, and India. Others have made they're they're free and clear for now as of September 2020. Right, and they're going to they're going to be more going going forward as we get to 2021. It, it's it's going to be the whole world is going to be above the 90% threshold. And which, you know, again, raises the issue, where are the vigilantes? Why are, why are interest rates only falling? It can't be that debt levels by themselves are explanatory of very much, at least in the current situation. So, it's, so what is our conclusion to this paper? It, yes, Reinhardt and Rogoff are apparently right. We, and statistically, they were historically, and we're seeing it again now, debt levels are rising, economic growth is slowing, but it's not being caused by bond vigilantes. It's more because of just what? Structural problems in the euro dollar system. We keep coming back to the whole to show. The, the one thing that we don't ever talk about, or at least in you know the mainstream media, they don't ever talk about because they don't know to talk about it. It's really, it's the, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, like Ben Bernanke's global savings club, we can see the effect but since it's outside our, the cause is outside of our worldview, we can't put our finger, we can't seem to put our finger on it, right? We know there's something going on. We know there's, it, this is abnormal, but we can't say why, because we don't, we don't, we don't know about this. We don't invest this. The Euro dollar officially doesn't exist. It's, 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 it's a curious little investment between banks. It's not a monetary system that would have such far ranging wide impacts upon the entire global economy, negative impacts on the global economy since 2007. It's the X factor that's never factored into anything. And so, yeah, debt levels. And it's really, I mean, I think the, the, the major takeaway here, at least in the current, current, the context of the current discussion is here we have more debt being piled on in the wake of the 2020 recession. And again, this is supposed to be help and inflationary and do too much. And we're at risk of having, uh, you know, governments go too far when in the context of Reinhardt and Rogoff's framework, then we should expect the opposite, right? <laughs> you know, government, more government debt. We're well above the 90% threshold, which would at least suggest or indicate some kind of correlation with lower, not better, but lower economic growth over the period ahead, which at the very least, even if you don't suggest the causation that we do, is consistent with lower and lower bond yields, which suggests lower mix of growth and inflation over the intermediate and longer run anyway. So the lack of the introduction of more debt, maybe there's a reason bonds are not rallying or not being sold off as much or much more than they already have. US Treasury bond yields are very low signifying there's nothing to worry about U.S. government. Keep on spending like crazy, even though your debt to GDP levels are through the roof. That doesn't make sense. Why are bond yields so low? Aha, say some people. The reason they're so low is because the Fed is stepping in and buying up all the supply. Maybe that's what happened. We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, to tell us what happened at the recent, most recent 20-year bond auction? Apparently, it went very well. Is that because the government, the central bank, is 
buying up all the supply and that's why bond yields are low? Yeah, that's the central point, or at least one of the main points of quantitative easing. It's always been about, at least in the public mind, about lowering interest rates, right? And it sounds like it should. Mm -hmm. It's very an intuitive case. The government is, or the central bank isn't buying bonds for economic reasons. It's a non-economic actor. And so it's just buying bonds, which should increase the price on those bonds because it's additional bids for securities that are out there in the marketplace. And of course, higher prices means lower yield. So at least in theory, it sounds like quantitative easing would be consistent with maintaining lower yields, especially if the pace of quantitative easing is extreme or large or huge. If the, the Federal Reserve is buying an enormous quantity of bonds, how could that not keep a, a lid on lower interest rates? At least that's that's the idea. And, you know, as we've seen over the last couple of months with, with interest rates rising a little bit, it, it has been really underwhelming how much the reflation trade has gone. And so that that brings back the question is it because our interest rates is it because that the the, the fed is doing a lot of quant quantitative easing over the last year is that the reason why interest rates haven't gone much higher than they, they they maybe they would have if the fed wasn't in there buying a lot of treasuries in episode 60 we discussed the findings or conclusions of the bank of new zealand the central what is it called the reserve bank of new zealand Yes, And they told us that indeed they find that quantitative easing does help yields go down. But as we reported in episode 60, it was by a surprisingly small amount. And in this article, you tell us, you quote them. Oh, by the way, the article is called The QE Nundrum. The QE Nundrum. You can find that at Alhambra Investments. And it was posted on April 21st, Should we call it the QE nundrum or the quanundrum? Or <laughs> maybe we need to call it. The, I like the quanundrum. Okay, perfect. Type that into your Google machine, the quanundrum. And Jeff, what did New Zealand tell us? How much did yeah, yields I, fall 10% of GDP, a, quanti, a large scale asset purchase of 10% of GDP lowers bond yields by 7%. I mean, that's what you would think, right? 7%? <laughs> no, it's 50 basis points. I mean, 10% of GDP is an enormous amount. And why wouldn't it be 7%, right? Because it's absolutely massive. And yet you're telling me on average through a bunch of statistical studies conducted by the central banks themselves or, you know, the BIS or IMF, all of these studies suggest that at best, at most, on average, there's a 50 basis point reduction for a 10% of GDP program which is really kind of pitiful. It's massive bond buying and only a little bit of reduction in yield. Jeff, can you tell us how much of, as a proportion of GDP has the Fed bought over the last 13, 14 years? It's, over the last, well, it, it fluctuates up and down, but over the last year or so, it's been a little bit, it's been around 10% of GDP. Okay, got it. So one year's worth of QE, comes out to about 10% of GDP, at least at the Fed's pace. And that contributes to 0.5% reduction because yeah, rates so were already falling. Right. As... So that would tell us that right now we would expect giving them the benefit of the doubt here and using New Zealand's you know schematic or framework, they would say the tenure should be what? 2.1%, 2.2%, somewhere around there. And really, most of the academic literature is actually much less kind than 50 basis points. So hmm. 50 basis points is, is kind of like our top end range for QEs of impacts. And so we're, you know, 
at most we would expect without according to all of these statistical studies, we would expect that the, the US 10 year treasury might not be much more than 2.1 or 2.2% anyway, which again, give, that's really not out of, the, out, of, out of the line of past reflationary periods. It's certainly nothing abnormal or out of the ordinary. And given everything, everything that's, that's going on right now, it still leaves us asking the same question. How could bond yields be so low? Well, Mr. Richard Fisher answered that question years ago because the market is buying these things. And so he was asking, why are we buying what the market wants to buy anyhow? Yeah, and, and that's, that's really what's, what, what you see in these studies and what the Bank of New Zealand was talking about was the reason why Q, big, even massive QEs don't really lower interest rates is because the market has already lowered interest rates for very different reasons. And so QE kind of comes in after rates are already falling, which is what Richard Fisher was talking about. Investors are already fleeing toward these assets. And then the central bank comes in and says, we're going to lower interest rates by buying bonds that the market's already buying bonds and has already lowered interest rates. And so, I mean, Richard Fisher, of all people, said, this is kind of stupid, isn't it? This is kind of circular logic and silly. How is it with the market lowers interest rates already, and then we come in and lower interest rates a little bit more, how does that make it stimulus? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but it's, the crux of this article here is what we just heard you say and what Richard Fisher was saying would suggest that it might be pointless what the, what the Fed is doing or a waste of time or mildly helpful. In this article, you do some math to come to perhaps the conclusion that it's not just neutral or pointless, that it might be harmful. So can you tell us the journey that we're gonna go on? We're gonna pull up some graphs and tables and we're going to try to understand how QE is doing what that might not just be pointless. Well, first of all, quantitative easing is not money printing. It is an asset swap. And there are two sides to the asset swap. And we're only supposed to focus on the one. That's certainly the one the media and the and central bankers focus on, which is the creation of bank reserves, which is just an accounting byproduct of all this. But it's the increasing level of bank reserves that happen at the end of this transaction. When a commercial bank engages with quantitative easing, uh, selling with the central bank, it ends up with, a, it ends up with a, a larger balance of bank reserves on account with the Fed. However, there's the other side of the asset swap here. It, before this transaction began, the central bank had a bond, had some kind of asset to sell the Fed in order to create, the, in order to end up with these bank reserves. And in this case, we're talking about U.S. Treasuries, but there's also other assets that central banks have bought, you know, mortgage bonds and mortgage-backed securities and things like that. But here we're going to focus on U.S. Treasuries because that's really the, in, in the current day and age, that's really where everything, all the focus really should be on. So in our asset swap, the, set, the commercial bank starts with a government a U.S. Treasury bond. And at the end of the asset swap, it has bank reserves, which means it no longer has the U.S. Treasury bond. The Federal Reserve has the U.S. Treasury bond locked away in its summer portfolio. Now, it says it's not locked away. We have this reverse repo program where banks can lend it or can rent this collateral from us if they need to. But, you know, uh, history has shown, recent history has shown the reverse repo program does very little to help alleviate, which is what we're talking about here. Once those bonds leave the commercial banking sector and end up in SOMA, that's less bonds for the repo and derivatives markets to use as collateral. Because as we know, we've talked about this many times before, 
Collateral is not a single thing. It's not static. It's repledged, repurposed, reused, and rehypothecated far and wide all across the entire world. So bonds taken out by quantitative easing are bonds that are no longer usable, or at least usable on the same terms in the same way as they had been before QE. So yes, bank reserves go up, but something else happens on the collateral side. And what is that that happens on the collateral side? We need to really think about that and figure that out. In episode 62, we discussed what a pair of researchers concluded is that something else. And the research was done in December of 2020, at least that's when it was published. And they concluded that for every $33 billion increase in weekly Fed purchases, it resulted in a 0.5 increase in the collateral chain. That 0.5, that means 50% more, right, Jeff? So, no. <laughs> no. okay, so tell me, tell me yeah, what so we're... Collateral multiplier, collateral chains. The idea is, going back to rehypothecation, reuse, repledging, a single U.S. Treasury might be reused as many as six or eight times, in the, in, at least according to the academic literature, which means that a collateral chain, you know, a single bond is used eight times, the collateral chain is 8.0. So what they're saying is that when the government comes in with, or the Federal Reserve comes in with the quantitative easing and removes $33 billion a week in U.S. Treasuries from the system, the actual collateral chains has to stretch 0.5 times or you know, 0.5 points more. So instead of six, six and a half, in order just to have the same amount of collateral available to conduct the same amount of repo and derivatives transactions, all these other things. So the Fed removing collateral means that dealers have to do more repledging, more rehypothecation, just to make up for what the Fed took away from them. And as you can already start to sense, I hope, that can't be a good thing. That, that there's got to be some kind of downside negative consequences to making dealers do more just to stand still. The Fed is raising the level of bank reserves at the same time it's taking collateral from the system. And maybe, you know, those bank reserves aren't really useful, but that collateral sure is. I mean, it's being reused six or eight times. And if you actually talk to people who actually work in the system, they'll tell you it's, it's probably much higher than six or eight times. That's usually what, that's just what gets reported. It could be 20, 30 times. In some, so I've heard some people whisper about. And so collateral, highly useful, gets reused all throughout the, the really the guts and the nuts and bolts of the financial system. Bank reserves not really used much at all, except to write media stories in Bloomberg and things like that. And oh, look at the bank reserves are way up. So you see bank reserves go up. You're supposed to be impressed about quote unquote money printing. But what really happens is collateral disappears or at least gets locked away from commercial banks to use it in a way that they really need to. The way commercial banks really need to, to give people a sense of what that means, how commercial banks really need to, you quote Morgan Stanley from its annual 2020 report on page 117 in the footnotes. I'm going to read it. Jeff, all, just the, to get... know, all the good stuff is in the footnotes. There's nothing. I mean, if you want to know anything about banking and moder the modern monetary system, you got to go into the footnotes. That's where everything is. One of your famous... Uh, articles is called footnote dollars, where you found trillions, 10, 14 trillion dollars worth of money that had previously been undiscovered. The BIS, I believe that they had done that. Is that right? Yep. And the, you know, here we are with footnote dollars again, except here it's in the form of collateral. I'm just going to read a sentence because it's, let me, let me give it a shot here. 
the firm receives collateral in the form of securities in connection with securities purchased under agreements to resell, securities borrowed, securities for securities transactions, derivative transactions, customer margin loans, and securities-based lending. In many cases, the firm is permitted to sell or repledge this collateral to secure securities sold under agreements to repurchase, to enter into securities lending and derivative transactions, or for delivery to counterparties to cover short positions. Jeff, that amounts to $724.8 billion for Morgan Stanley alone. Yeah, look, listen to what they're saying. They're saying we do a bunch of stuff you don't know about, and it's that's a wide range of stuff. And the number you just said, 700 some odd billion, billion with a B, 700. And this is just one bank. This is just Morgan Stanley. That's what they've received, collateral they received, that they do have the right to repledge or reuse in some way. And then they tell you that of that 700 some odd billion, they have repledged, at least at the, by the end of the last year, and maybe it was more before their window dressing, year-end window dressing, but at least at the year-end window dressing, they say they did repledge more than half a trillion, 500 billion with a B, just Morgan Stanley. That's the amount of collateral that's been repledged by this one Wall Street bank at the end of last year. Just to give people a sense of what size that is, that 724 billion, if you add together the global iron ore market, the global met coal market, and the global natural gas market, that's about that's over seven hundred billion dollars. That's what Morgan Stanley is repledging or has available to repledge. Unbelievable. Okay, so Jeff, what you did is then you went through a stylized experiment to just get a sense of what might be happening with QE taking collateral out and affecting more than just one bank. So you pulled in three banks. Which are those three banks? Let me pull up the chart that you put together and you walk us through it. Yeah, I said in the article, I did a random sample of two additional. I, I used Morgan Stanley because I already had the numbers. I didn't feel like going back to Edgar and looking up different ones, but I used Goldman Sachs and, and Citigroup, just picking them out of the hat. They happen to be the ones I, I focused on. And they're really, all three of these are representative of what really happens at the big banks anyway. So it's not really like there's a tremendous amount of differences. And as you can see by the numbers, even the reuse rates are pretty close. I mean, some of, there's, there's a couple of differences here and there, but by and large, you know, these are massive numbers. Here's three banks where, or, you know, for the last couple of years before 2020, they were reusing, repledging, rehypothecating collateral of about 1.4 trillion. That was what they reported uh, doing is in terms of reuse for those three years, on average, about a little, little bit more than 1.4 trillion. And where it gets interesting, we were really starting to, you know, what we're really going here is that if the Federal Reserve, if, 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 if our idea that the Federal Reserve is creating problems and ripples in the collateral market, what we'd expect to find, what we should find, is if the Fed gets, engages in massive amounts of QE in 2020, we would expect there would be a lot more reusage in collateral. And lo and behold, we look at our sample here, just these three banks, we see a massive increase in the amount of collateral that was repledged by these three banks, almost 16% year over year, when there hadn't been much change in the collateral repledging in the three years prior. Right. So we go from $1.4 for the three banks, which we see 
every year, 2017, 2018, 2019. In 2020, those three banks, it jumps up to 1.7, as you say, 16% increase. And now you start multiplying it to give us a sense of the, the amount of treasuries that are seemingly available, right? Because it's 1.7 trillion securities available for repledge, then multiplied several times. How many times you chose six? Yeah, just to give us a sense of what we're doing. So I used the low end of the, the academic range, which remember was six to eight times for our collateral chain. So if we just using the 2019 uh, total, which was 1.486 trillion from just these three banks, multiplying that by six times, we would, we would expect that there's somewhere around nine trillion in total collateral being used throughout the system based on just these three banks. And so if we assume in 2020 that there's a 16% increase in reusage, we assume further that that, re that reusage is because of a higher multiplier rather than collateral being introduced into the system, then what we're finding is that, what we would expect then that the, 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 what we work out to find is that the collateral, the implied multiplier in 2020 must be somewhere around 6.93. So making these assumptions that, you know, the banks didn't get more collateral posted to them, they had to stretch their collateral change as that paper we discussed, as you know, common sense tells us reusage, reuse rates must have to adjust for the Federal Reserve taking on collateral. We would that would imply a, a, an increased multiplier of up to around 6.93, which means dealers have supplied about a, a little over 1.3 trillion or just short of 1.4 trillion in additional collateral through a higher multiplication that is missing because of quantitative easing. It was the, uh, the October paper from the Federal Reserve which said that at a $33 billion weekly pace or increase in weekly pace of quantitative easing purchases, that, that, that led to an increase in the collateral chains of 0.5 points. So from six to six and a half, essentially. And we actually do the math here using the Fed's numbers. What you find that is that in 2020, the weekly pace increased from practically zero because remember quantitative easing before uh, the repo mess in September 2019 led to then not QE, which was QE5. So basically the Fed's uh, holdings of US treasuries in 2019 was pretty flat for the year. It's actually a little bit lower for most of the year. And then in 2020, obviously the big increase in quantitative easing because of the mess with the global financial crisis in March. So you have an increase in weekly pace of about 40 some odd, or 40 some odd billion a week which if we apply the 0.33 or the, the 0.5 for 33 billion, what we, we anticipate is that that gets to, what we should see is a collateral multiplier reuse increase of 0.66 points. So if we're assuming six, it should be 6.66, which is of course pretty close to the 6.93 that I figured from just using a bunch of assumptions and uh, starting from these three banks bank totals. So it is what we're saying here is that these numbers and this, this intellectual exercise is at least consistent with the idea contained in the paper. And it's actually, the number's a lot closer than I thought it would be. But anyway, it's, it's, it's at least consistent with the idea that the Federal Reserve is stripping collateral from the system, forcing dealers to then to uh, do, a, do a bunch of stuff that maybe we don't really want them to do, rehypothecate and reusing, reusing treasuries is actually increasing the systemic risk and increasing the systemic pressures on these vital monetary spaces. 
And, and that's really, you know, the whole point here was to say, this is what we expect to happen. And this is kind of what we found. Now, we're not really, this is not a scientific study. This is not meant to convey any sort of precision or accuracy. It's not meant to say this definitively was what's going on. What we're trying to do is both illustrate the concept as well as, you know, give ourselves a little bit of a check to see if it's a realistic, it, at least we didn't, we didn't say that this didn't, this could not have happened. The data is at least consistent with the idea in the, contained in the paper as, as well as contained in, you know, any number of years that I've said that this is what's happened with, with quantitative easing, that it has negative effects that we really need to appreciate. And those negative effects are that it, it removes collateral from the system, which you would expect then that not only does it raise the risks, the systemic risks in the system, it makes that collateral more valuable, but not for the, not for stimulus or good reasons, for bad reasons. That's right. So the implicit assumption is central banks are buying and we're told from the academic studies that yields go down by half a percent. Okay. And we make the implicit connection. They go down by half a percent because central banks are buying. But you explain, you suggest to us, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the consequences of central banks removing collateral that the private system then comes back in. So it's an indirect effect that the private system is even more desperate to get yes, their hands in instead collateral. Instead of a direct positive effect being stimulus, which is what we're taught and what we're told to believe, it's an indirect negative oh. effect that just piles on to, remember what we said before, interest rates are already following, already declining. Um, investors, the marketplace, the banking system is already piling into treasuries anyway. And here comes the Federal Reserve stripping this collateral that, that the system really wants to get its hands on, making them even more valuable. So that last 50 basis points in quantitative easing, lowering interest rates, may not be the good 50 basis points of stimulus. It might be the bad the 50 basis points of less collateral available for the system. And there's even more negative effects than that that are, that are not contained specifically in, you know, this does it lower yields. There are systemic consequences that that, that paper we referenced also talks about, which says that, you know, raises the issue. Do we really want uh, the banking system to make these long repledging high multiplier collateral chains that underpins not just the repo market, which is the central monetary uh, backbone of the entire global system, but also all, all you know, the 14 trillion in foot uh, footnote dollars in derivatives too. So we're making it much more difficult and much more risky to engage in basic and necessary monetary actions, which is, which is not a good thing either. So you know, we're, we're told, hey, let's focus on the bank reserves. The Fed helps by lowering interest rates, money printing, all this stuff. When in reality, it might be exactly the opposite case where the Fed is actually doing more harm than help. Jeff, was there anything that we didn't cover in this uh, kind of complex, lot of numbers article? Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to bring up before we uh, bid the audience an adieu? Yeah, I just want to reiterate again that you know what we're doing here wasn't intended to be proof. This is not evidence. It was just an example to, first of all, to get people thinking these numbers are big, hmm. and so this really can have some really good explanatory power about what we're seeing with bond yields. And the other thing is that yes, it's consistent with the idea that QE has this negative effect. We found the negative, we at least found the idea or at least consistent, the data that's consistent with the idea that there might be a negative effect because the banks did report that they're reusing more collateral and they have more collateral available to reuse. And that was specific to 2020. 
which is when the Fed went nuts with its QE6. So everything is at least at the, at the start, you know, you can do a deeper investigation if you wanted to. But from our, 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 our very limited perspective, what we found is what we would expect to find. So at least at the, is, is a very cursory uh, example. It does comport with the idea that QE may not be doing the positive things. And therefore, low interest rates may have an entirely different explanation, which is, as we always say around here, entirely consistent with the interest rate fallacy which is that low rates are not a good sign. They are not stimulus. And if the central bank is indirectly causing rates to go even lower for these reasons, that is absolutely the interest rate fallacy personified. Tighter collateral, longer collateral chains, that is definitely tight money. Jeff, thank you for shining some light into the monetary shadows this week. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll talk to you again next week. Okay, take care, Emil. 